Hey, welcome to the very first episode of Revival Stories. I'm Dan. I'm a pastor in State College, Pennsylvania, Central PA. I'm a student of revivals. I love revivals. God has had me studying revivals, especially for the last decade or so. And I'm also a child of God who, man, who just longs to see hundreds of thousands of people added to the family of God, covered in his love, adopted into the family. And honestly, it's my hope that the stories you hear in this podcast will create whispers of the Spirit that lead to personal renewal, a growing desperation for corporate revival in the church, and a fresh expectancy for an awakening to the love of Jesus, that, that it would spring forth in every neighborhood of our nation, praying for personal renewal, corporate revival, and spiritual awakening in every neighborhood in, this, in our nation. I believe that that the next move of God is going to spring forth from neighborhoods. And it's also my hope that these stories, some of them will be uh, biblical stories, some of them historical stories of revival, some of them personal stories, that these stories from myself and from others down the road will inspire us, perhaps even compel us to pray. Really, that's the main thing, is that it would cause us to pray, to, to pray with a heart of repentance, to to go after God, to go all in for Jesus, and even to travail in prayer. That word travail is, is often used of somebody giving birth, going through the pain of labor in order to give birth, travailing in prayer. One of the last great revivals in the Western world took place from 1949 to 1952 in the Hebrides Islands. David Thomas writes, seemingly out of nowhere, a spiritual awakening swept across the islands of Harrison Lewis, replacing post-W. World War II despair and depression with with earnest, zealous faith. Not long ago, David had come across a book on the Hebrides revival, and he was so fascinated that it, that he flew to the islands in the hopes of talking to someone who had been alive during the revival. And he ended up meeting with eleven eyewitnesses in the very church where everything started. He, he asked them to describe what led to the revival. And while they touched on, on things like preaching and worship and, and confession, singing to, to a person, they all agreed upon one thing even more essential. Thompson writes, they told of the attitude of brokenness and desperation that stirred Christians in that day, a, a spirit of necessity and audacity, a manner of prayer that could be daring and agonizing, and they called it travailing prayer, travailing prayer. If you could talk to those 11, they would probably tell you that the Hebrides Islands at that time was a place that was about as dark spiritually as as it could be. Addiction. Young people avoided church like it was the plague. Depression ran rampant. They, they would tell you how God put a burden on two elderly sisters for their neighbors, for their islands. So so these two began to travail in prayer. And I, and I can't tell you how often as I study revival that it seems like there's there's always two elderly women or men, two, two people who, who give it all they have in prayer. These two women prayed. They travailed in prayer two days a week from 10 p.m. until 3 in the morning, week in, week out. They just grabbed hold of God. Peggy was blind. Her sister, Christine, was crippled with arthritis. Neither could go to church much, but man, they could travail. Those 11 eyewitnesses might tell you about a night early in the revival when Duncan Campbell, a, a preacher, was preaching his heart out, but getting nowhere. The people were cold and content with their religion, but as he preached, 
He noticed a young teen near the front. He had only recently become a Christ follower, but his, his heart was so tender. As Duncan preached, the young man just wept and the tears were forming a puddle around his boots. Campbell, in humility, stopped preaching and, and just asked this young man to stand up and pray. And, and in Campbell's words, just three sentences of prayer and the power of God fell upon them in that church building. Formal Presbyterians content with their religion began to cry out to God. It's reported that that night, listen, that night, every house in the community had at least one person who became a new follower of Christ. People were so hungry for God. And the single essential cause of this revival, according to 11 eyewitnesses, was travailing prayer. You know, I have dozens of books on prayer in my library. You, you may be surprised to know that only a couple of the books written in the last two to three decades have even so much as a chapter on travailing prayer. If you want to read about travailing prayer, you have to read the old books, listen to the old sermons, sermons and books that were birthed in revival. And, and yet the Bible seems to speak, if you think about it, it seems to speak very little of casual prayer. Its pages are filled with examples of people who wrestled with God, who travailed and groaned and cried out in prayer to see God's purposes birthed in their lives and the world around them. For example, in Exodus 2.23, all the way back at the beginning, the people of Israel have been captive in Egypt in bondage to a late life of slavery. And it says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned and their slavery. They cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Ed Savosa used to remark that without verse 23, <laughs> the cry, the travailing prayer without Exodus 23, the book of Exodus would have been a really short book. I mean, look at the travailing prayer in Isaiah 62. I've posted watchmen on your walls. These are the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. I've posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They, they will never be silent. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest. Give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. In Old Testament cities, watchmen were typically placed on a wall to keep watch for one of two things, either messengers, in which case they would call for the doors to be opened, or enemies, in which case they would sound the alarm. But something is different about the job description for these watchmen. They are to travail. Can't keep them silent. Jesus says, I'm placing people on the wall who will not keep silent, who will give God no rest until he comes. These watchers not only watch for the coming, they call for it. They're, they're on alert, calling out to God, give him no rest. God, where are you? God, come. Who, who, who are the people in our day who will pray like this? Where are the... Where are the middle school and high school students, the Penn State students who will give God no rest until he comes into their school? Where are the neighbors who will give God no rest until he births something new in their neighborhood? Where are the workers from janitors down to CEOs who will not let God rest till their company is on fire for good and God? Where are the mothers and the fathers, the grandmothers and grandpas who, who will not let God rest until God births a new season in their family? There are moments in time 
the Bible calls them kairos moments, moments in time that are sp spiritually historic. And, and in the moment, it doesn't always seem historic, but the moments gather and, and they build and then something happens. And I believe with all my heart, globally and locally, we're in one of those moments. I believe that history will record these days as a global moment for the kingdom of God, a season when a new chapter was birthed, if we will travail. Even Jesus travailed. In Hebrews 5, 7, the author writes, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Fervent cries and tears. He travailed. Paul and Epaphras travailed for the church. In Colossians 4.12, Paul described Epaphras as, Epaphras is who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm. He wrestled in prayer. If you don't like the, the, the birthing metaphor, how about wrestling? Like Jacob in the Old Testament wrestled with God. He would not let God go until he blessed him. He wasn't really wrestling. He was just hanging on for dear life. I will not let you go. For whom are you wrestling? Paul was wrestling for the church in Galatia. In Galatians 4.19, he called them, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Well, what if we were to travail in prayer for personal renewal? What if we were to travail in prayer for corporate revival? What if we were to travail in prayer for another great awakening to spring forth from neighborhoods and all across our nation? I've heard it said sometimes that we should pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on us. But I find that when I'm working like it depends on me, I rarely pray like it depends on God. Perhaps we also need to figure out what it looks like to work like it depends on God. Perhaps we need to come to God with a posture of brokenness, realizing that in the work, the very best thing I bring to the table is my desperate dependency on God, not, not my skills, not my capacities. Rebuilding always begins with be still and know that I'm God. Revival always begins with be still and know that I'm God. During the course of the coronavirus season in 2020, God gave me three words to convict and encourage and, and guide me. The first word uh, I received while I had COVID-19, and it was simply that, be still. Let your hands grow slack. Quit trying to control what you can't control, Dan. I sense God saying deeply in my spirit, I've got this. Get your eyes on me. What I put in your heart, I'm doing. The second word happened during the day surrounding George Floyd's death. We were in Minnesota for our granddaughter Maisie's birth, and, and God asked me to surrender the crowds. The third word came a few weeks later, surrender your voice. Now for a leader who likes to preach to crowds, be still, surrender the crowds, and surrender your voice. My goodness, I didn't make those up. Not the words that I wanted. But, but at every point, I've had this growing conviction that those words have intention beyond me, that it's not just what he's doing in me, but that he's doing something in us so that he can do something through us. I do believe that a move of God is coming, one that will go beyond what we've asked for or imagined. And so I have not stopped praying, Lord, do it again. As we surrender to you the crowds, as we surrender to you our voice, as we open up our ears, as we quit trying to control what we were never meant to control, God, would you do it again? 
what you did in Nehemiah's day that amazed the people. Would you do it again? What you did with Moses and the people of God, do it again. What you promised to Ezekiel as he looked out over a valley of dry bones. God, would you breathe your breath of life into your church again? What you did through that ragtag group of first Jesus apprentices when they became known as the people who turned the world upside down. Would you do it again? Oh God, what you did in the Hebrides Islands, what, what, what you did through Jeremiah Lampfear and the Great Prayer Revival, would you do it again? Mark Battison shares a, a story about J. Edwin Orr. Orr was one of the great revival historians of, of all time. God put such a passion on his heart for revival. Back in the 1940s, Orr was a professor at Wheaton College, and he took a group of students to England to study revival. One of their stops was the Epworth Rectory, where John Wesley was based. They spent time in his study. It's basically a museum, so all his books were there. The desk where he wrote his revival messages and gave leadership to a great move of God that in time became the Methodist Church. They went upstairs to Wesley's living quarters, and before they left, someone noticed two worn, smooth impressions in the wooden floor right beside the bed. Orr said that that was Wesley. Wesley would kneel every morning for prayer, and for hours he would pray by his bedside, praying for his church, praying for his people, praying for his community, his nation, praying for revival. They left the bedroom and they went out to the bus. But as they were getting on the bus, or noticed one student was missing. Going back upstairs, he found that student kneeling in the knee holes, praying with his face on the bed. Oh, Lord, would you do it again? Would you do it again? Or placed a hand on the student's shoulder and said gently, Come on, Billy, we have to go. And at his words, Billy Graham got up off his knees and joined the others on the bus. And oh, if God didn't do it again in Graham's life. As I've prayed that prayer over and over and over again, God, would you do it again? I've I've had this sweet, convicting sense of Jesus asking me, asking us, will you join me? God, would you do it again? Dan, will you join me? God, would you do it again? People, will you join me? Church, will you join me? And I think that's the same response Jesus is offering us today. If we want to see the do-it-agains, we need to take the same posture that Wesley and Graham did. We cannot stand in his power if we will not kneel in his presence. We cannot stand in his power if we will not kneel in his presence. We need to pray. We need to obey. We need to go all in. Through his death and his resurrection, we have new life, new power, new hope. And in the celebration of what he has done as as our hearts ache for him to do it again, we need to hear him ask, will you join me? Will you pick up your cross and follow me? Will you surrender everything that you have? Will you pray like I prayed? Will you love like I loved? Will you give like I gave? Will you travail in prayer to give birth to a new move of God? Will you join me? As I close, I'd like to simply pray over you a prayer that we've used often in the last year, years at Calvary. We call it the do it again prayer. Would you pray with me? God of revival, would you do it again? 
See us in the midst of our rubble and hear our cries to do it again. We confess our sins, the dryness of our bones, the rubble of our church, the brokenness of our families and our neighborhoods. Oh God, we need your gracious hand upon us. Would you do it again? Like the amazing rebuilding of Nehemiah's day, like your promise to Ezekiel to breathe life into dry bones, like the power of your spirit that turned a ragtag group of Jesus apprentices into those who turned the world upside down. Oh, God, would you do it again? What you've done throughout history, would you do now? What you're doing globally, would you do here? What you've done through others, would you do through us? Lord, do it again. Stir our hearts with holy fire. Breathe new life into dry bones. Fill our valleys with the knowledge of your glory. Revive your church and renew your people. Pour out your fierce sacrificial love through us. We are your family. And one day we will sit around your table. But for now we are desperate for your hand upon us. We surrender to chase you with all our hearts. Hear our prayers, Lord. Do it again and do it through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This week, as you pray for personal revival and corporate, personal renewal and corporate revival and, and a spiritual awakening, a new move of God through us, may, may we pray like Duncan Campbell that the presence of God would saturate our communities. Then we'll know that we're in revival. Lord, would you do it again? Thanks for joining us. And, We'll see you on the next episode of Revival Stories.